I'm turning tonight to the book of Ezra, chapter 10 and verse 6. The book of Ezra, chapter 10, verse 6. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. And our subject this evening is separation for Christ. And we've been considering in recent studies the great shock for Ezra that intermarriage with uh, pagan wives had taken place among the children of Israel. Direct disobedience to God, idolatry, because they were adopting the idols of their pagan wives, and adopting, and this is what some of them desired, the culture of the pagan nations around them. So the purpose of Israel, now of course Judah exclusively, had been abandoned, that they were the people of God. There had been the 70 years captivity in Babylon as a punishment for centuries of idolatry. And now, 40,000 plus, 42,000 and even more, some 80 years previously, prior to this event here, had returned from captivity in Babylon to Judah and Jerusalem, And in that time, they'd lost their purpose, that they were to be the distinct people of God prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And they disobeyed God and adopted the idolatrous worship. So it's 458 BC now, and here in verse 6, it's been discovered, these things... Adezra has mourned and prayed and now he moves a general proclamation that these uh, cases will be dealt with. There were altogether 136 known cases of marriage of pagan wives and nothing had been done about it. They had law and order, they had princes and judges, they had the power and they used it They exercised discipline, they dealt with no end of things, but they ignored this particular activity. Possibly they ignored it because some of the chief offenders were none other than priests. Even four people are named from the high priestly family, sons and brothers, and uh, many uh, ordinary priests and many Levites and other temple servants and uh, some 86 of the general lay population. Now there were in Judah, having returned from the captivity at this time, possibly 50,000 men, 60,000 men. It's difficult to know the precise number. 42,000 had returned 80 years previously. Some 21,000 of those were male adults and uh, in the circumstances with the population rise 
perhaps there were that many more males now. So you might think that 136 is a relatively small number. And it is, yes. But this is the most serious offence for Israel. This is one of the worst things they could possibly do. And it was utterly shameful and disgraceful. And it would spread, as these things had in the past, and would now, like wildfire. And uh, this was the reason why they'd been in captivity in the first place. And so uh, there was this move made by Ezra the priest uh, and in order to bring these offenders to justice. And you read in verse 6, as we just come into the subject, uh, halfway through the verse, when he came hither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned. He took this so very seriously, he felt it so deeply, because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. It was a blight on the whole of the land. I would think there was already a perceptible discipline or punishment from God. It doesn't actually say this in the text. It does speak of the great rain that was very uncomfortable for them. They were called to a kind of convocation all the heads of the families of the country, they came, they assembled in a great broad street that was then outside the temple in Jerusalem. And they couldn't stand there for long because of the rains and the cold. When it was winter, and it is cold at that time, and there are rains, but this sounds as though it was something much worse. And it's mentioned again further on in the text. So there's every likelihood that this is a form of judgment already, that there was a a sort of deluge on the land and swamping of crops and so on, that there were tokens from God of his disfavour, and they mention it, or half mention it. They say that uh, God's anger will be removed from us. Well, there they are standing in this drenching rain outside the temple. Verse 7, they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together. And this is where they come, into that street outside the temple. There's a penalty for those who won't come. They'll forfeit their small holdings and their goods, everything they possess, and they'll be excluded from the nation of Israel, Judah, as it was now. That's in verse 8. So here's the gathering, verse 9. All the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within the three days. That would be no mean achievement. The date is given, and we'll know from another piece of data later on that uh, it took uh, uh, exactly three months to exercise the disciplines through the justices. And all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling. There seemed to have been something akin to an awakening because there's a tremendous sense of, of awareness of the seriousness of this for the whole land. The offence 
of the 136 that had never been dealt with, never been reproved, never been checked, was a blight on the whole country. Were they going to lose their privilege, having come back and re-established themselves and achieved much already? Were they now going to be cast off again, trembling because of this matter? And for the great rain, there was an awareness of the holiness of God, the seriousness of this head-on breaking of his commands. And verse 10 is where the priests stood up and said unto them, and the charge is announced, ye have transgressed and taken strange wives, and here I'm going to give a heading, to increase the trespass of Israel, to increase the guilt. What a significant statement. The uh, Hebrew translated trespass is guilt. It's correctly translated. It refers to their great wrong direction, wrong step. But to increase the guilt, the trespass of Israel, there's a record against them. And they're aware of it. And the record has now been made longer. They've been much punished already. Are they going to be returned to punishment? How much longer will God tolerate them with this continuing record of disobedience? They had disobeyed his command. They had refused to practice separation from the pagan nations and from their culture. They had committed idolatry and adopted that pagan lifestyle. That's all that was involved. And they'd increased the trespass of Israel. Now I want to turn you for a moment to the book of Revelation and chapter 2, where you see signs of this uh, idea of a record which can be transgressed by a church or company of people. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, you pick it up first with the church at Ephesus. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. They were in a fallen condition. And repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick, literally thy lampstand, out of his place, except thou repent. Now there were some things to be said for the church at Ephesus, and they're commended in some respects, but there is something against them. And if they don't repent of it, it could lead to the loss of their witness, their lampstand so that they're no more blessed at all as a church of God's people. God has, as it were, in this declaration, placed them in a warning zone. Now, of course, an individual Christian is never in quite such a warning zone. 
because the individual question, if he's truly saved, will never be lost. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints and all the texts that support it assure us of that. Our salvation cannot be lost. We may be in a warning for discipline. We may be in a warning for loss of privilege, a loss even of a ministry. But we won't be eternally lost. But a church can be lost, and Israel could be lost, and would in due course be lost. Don't mix up the two. Yes, we hold to the doctrine of perseverance, or if you like, the preservation of the saints. But we're thinking of a community, Israel, Judah, a church, an individual congregation. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, universal, but an individual congregation can have its lampstand removed and then it'll be no more. So it can be in a warning zone. Sometimes, you know, there's disobedience in churches and wrongdoing and, uh, uh, let's say, the admission of extreme worldliness and crazy things going on and many nonsensical things being taught. And yet you hear that here and there there's a genuine conversion and there's something going on. And some people will say, well, they've been blessed, so therefore it must be all right to be like that. It can't matter, after all. Oh, yes, in the warning zone, in some degree, God in his mercy, his amazing mercy, may continue to work. But you're in the warning zone. The lampstand may be removed. And that's a concept we need to think about, and churches at large need to think about. And the people of Judah and Jerusalem, they hadn't put a check on this activity, this disobedience. It's like the church at Corinth, good church in so many ways, but it had that Corinthian sinner, and the church had done nothing about it, and nobody seemed to mind. And so there's a great warning given to them. And they had to repent of that and change their ways. It's a parallel. So that's what you're seeing here in uh, Ezra and in this 10th chapter. This uh, idea that the trespass or the guilt has been increased. What's our record like before God? We are loved by the Father and by the Son and the Spirit is within us and we're children who receive constant mercy. But what's our record like? Are we always slipping and sliding? Long periods of backsliding? Periods of disobedience? Periods of doing nothing for the Lord? Periods of compromise? There's a record, you know, and sooner or later, we may have to be disciplined. And we may say to ourselves, why is that friend of mine being given all sorts of opportunities in Christian work and Christian service and they're not falling to me? 
well, have we uh, been unfaithful just too long? The mercy of God is still towards us. We're still his children. He'll make us right in the end. He'll draw us close. He'll take us to glory. But we can't be privileged with much because the trespass has been added to and added to and added to. So we've got to be as earnest as we can be and as zealous and as faithful and walk in communion with the Lord. So that's what we're seeing here, that uh, there is a kind of uh, point at which God has to move and to discipline and to restrain. And it's here in verse 10 of chapter 10, Ezra 10, to increase the trespass of Israel. Verse 11, Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure. It's a beautiful way of expressing it. After all, they were a typical church. They weren't all saved. But in New Testament times, in our congregation, in those who are members of the church, we trust and hope that most of them are saved. And their great concern is to please God and to do what is pleasing to him. And we, in our confession of any sin, we recognise, as David does in Psalm 51, we recognise that my conduct, whatever it might have been, has brought shame to the cause and is grievous to God. It has grieved the Lord. It has grieved the Spirit within. It's a grievous thing that I've done and I should be seeking to please him as one saved by him and given so much. Now therefore make confession, acknowledge sin, they're told. Acknowledge this is wrong. There's a sign that some people didn't altogether acknowledge it and we'll come to that in two minutes. Acknowledge the sin, confess that it's been accommodated and not dealt with and it hasn't offended you, you haven't moved and you've been indifferent to the hypocrisy it's involved because many of these people were priests as we'll see in a moment and go to the Lord with real regret and cry out for reformation and pledge yourself to him all that is in the confession and separate accept separation from the pagan wives and then we go down to verse 12. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, as I said before, this is something of the proportion of an awakening. And they're all so anxious to assent. As thou hast said, so must we do. But then there's a protest and it's legitimate from the people but the people are many, it's a time of much rain. We're not able to stand without. Neither is this a work of one day or two. They knew that there were many people through the land. For we are many that have transgressed in this thing. And so the proposal comes for the rulers of the people 
and the judges and the princes to take by appointment all the offenders. And then at the end of verse 14, they say, until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. Another indication that there was some very perceptible judgment of God on the land which they wished to bring to an end. And then there were two people, well, four people altogether, two people, Jonathan and Jehoshaphat, the son of Tikva, uh, and they seem to be protesting, and they have two men to support them. Verse 15 is interesting. It begins with the word only. But the original, the word means more however. So only is a good translation, but only in the old-fashioned usage of the word. It's, it's here as almost a synonym for however. However, Jonathan and uh, Jehoshaphat were employed about the matter. The original text says, stood forth. Now our translators have taken it in a positive sense. They were prominent in the execution of the matter. Most of the modern translations go the other way and stood forth means they opposed the uh, motion, as it were. And that's more likely, although there are strong arguments either way. It's more likely because of the way the f- verse 15 begins. However, it introduces you to a sour note. And so there's some opposition. But no more is said about the opposition. It was obviously overwhelmed and was taken no further. But there could have been some there, if that's a correct understanding, who even wanted this matter left alone. And verse 16, the children of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest with certain chief of the fathers after the house of their fathers and so on were separated and sat down in the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter and they made an end doesn't mean they executed them it means they processed all the offenders and made judgment against them and the divorces were arranged with whatever compassionate terms Ezra doesn't mention that either here or in the final verse of the chapter. He makes no mention of how it was done or the arrangements or the consideration given to the wives or to children and if there were children. There were some children by these wives, the final verse says. So we have to assume that it was as compassionately handled as possible the text here with it from Ezra is only concerned to record that the judgment was carried out and the separations accomplished. But then, we can't possibly expound this, but then come the list of names. 
Now here is typical Ezra that we've come across in the in the, his book before. He goes into great detail and he gives the names of the offenders and their families. And they're all listed. So we know that there were a number, a total number. There were something like four from the high priest's family. We can trace that. There were 13 from other priestly families. The text says so. There were 10 offenders from Levitical families. There were something like 24 offenders from temple servants, musicians, singers, and others. And there were some 86 lay offenders through the country. So many leaders among the people. And as you look at this list, you can see that leaders were the first to fall. The first to fail. And the first to let each other off in the matter. And to say nothing about it. The leaders failed first. It's a sad, sad thing. But in church history, when you have great periods of decline, a doctrinal decline, error in doctrine will come in, error in practice, a deviation from the blueprint of the New Testament, it always starts with leadership. They always start the decline and the problem. And it's well entrenched first. In our country, we often refer to this, the history of the startling decline of the historic mainline denominations that were all once so sound all began in leadership councils, in seminaries, in colleges. All the doctrine decay started at the top. That's one of the reasons I can offer you while the New Testament gives us only one form of church government and that is congregational independency because it's the safest. Remarkably, it's the safest. Human reasoning says, surely not. Surely it would be much safer for all churches that believe the same things, believed in the scripture, the inspired word, the doctrines of the, of the gospel and so on. Surely it would be safer if they all got together and they moved together. Surely there's strength in numbers. That's how the world thinks. Surely if there's a strong leader and a council of leadership call it a synod, a presbytery, any synod, a presbytery, anything you like, you know, there is strength. Then if somebody goes wrong here, it can be corrected. Somebody goes wrong there, an individual congregation, it can be corrected. There's one big trouble with that thinking, the worldly model of organisation and government, that decline always starts at the top, in the leadership. Well, of course it does because we have a spiritual enemy. Why should Satan attack, say, a thousand individual churches when it's much easier for him to corrupt the top? Then he's got them all. They'll all fall in due course. 
So he'll go for the leadership and the colleges, the seminaries. Satan is no fool, friends. It's really perfectly obvious when you think about it. And that is why you don't have such a construction in the New Testament for the church. Denominations and synods and leaderships and popes and archbishops and, and church councils and so on. They're all human devices. And in, they mean well when they start and they may do well for a time, but they all collapse. And Satan is already training the men who will get to the top. And he picks somebody who is probably not even a true convert, but he's very clever, and he can learn the doctrine, and he can excel in uh, theology, and he can climb up the ranks, but he's a very ambitious man. And he's a man who loves to control and to organize. And Satan's got his career charted until he becomes the head of that denomination. Then you can write it off. So I'm pointing this out from the book of Ezra. You see it reflected even here. The rot starts at the top. So the genius of New Testament government is that there isn't a top. There's only Christ and his word. And every congregation is autonomous. Of course we can fellowship together and assist each other, but we don't want to be in the same organization because immediately it will start to rot. And it usually takes a good group about 50 to 70 years to fall, sometimes faster. If you could trace the history, say, in the United States, I read a very interesting book once, tracing, it was up to date up till about 1980, uh, tracing all the Presbyterian denominations, which are numerous, that have ever been started in the United States. Usually they've started because the one to which that group of churches belonged originally has gone wrong. So they've withdrawn and started a new one. And the book traces how quickly that new group goes wrong. And there's another exodus. And another Presbyterian church begins. And how quickly that goes wrong. And we never learn. We do the same thing over and over again. Down the centuries. And you come back to the New Testament. And you find the autonomy of the individual congregation. Answerable to God. And then there's something else about this. This is a very negative, almost cynical point, but there's something else about this. If an individual church loses touch with the Saviour, loses touch with the doctrines of the Bible, and people are no longer converted, and the membership sags and sags and sags, what happens to it? It self-destructs. It disappears. But if it's a Church of England church, the denomination holds it up and keeps it going in its corruption and its failure. And so with most of the denominations. So while that's a rather cynical negative point, autonomy in, of the local church and independency 
even has its own self-destruct system for those that do go wrong. Well, we could speak about this for a long time, and I'm, I, I'm uh, really consuming time. But let's come back to this extraordinary list. This is the list of all those who offended. Shameful compromise, direct disobedience, tolerated by the majority, though they had the power. I mean, look back at verse 8. This is interesting. Uh, And that whosoever would not come within three days, according to the the counsel of the princes and the elders, all his substance should be full. Look at the power that the princes and the elders had. They could declare that if you didn't come for judgment, you'd forfeit all your goods and holdings and be excluded. Now, I'm mentioning that to show their power was active. They could have dealt with this sin. They had the power. They didn't bother. They didn't do so. That's why it was all so serious and a blight on the whole nation. And so, this is the situation. The sin is dealt with, it's judged, it's mostly eminent people. This makes you think again of worldliness in churches, doesn't it? What is the modern equivalent of the idolatry of the Jews in the time of Ezra? Well, churches choosing the world rather than the scripture and the scriptural manner of worship and seeking after God, wanting entertainment, wanting the pop groups, even the hairstyles and the leather jackets and the behavior and the the applause and the wealth and all the trappings of secular entertainment in church. All over the country there are churches that are supposed to be Bible churches and you, you never know it from the worship. There can't possibly be any sense of God. It's all rhythm and pleasure and it's adopting the very fashion and music styles that are designed by the world to promote sex, illicit sex and drugs. And if disobedience to God, unbelief, everything. It, it is just amazing that in Israel's time, the judges and the princes and the elders and the priests would not act on the idolatrous taking of pagan wives. To me, it's astonishing the state of affairs that we see in churches that claim to be Bible-believing churches today. The world is in. Wealth is in. Ease is in. Entertainment is in. There is no distinction between the church and the world anymore in so many places. I think this is the direct equivalent of what you see in Ezra. There won't be a revival among those churches or an awakening unless there's repentance 
and the forfeiting of these things. It's not possible. And that's a warning which is given here, even in this book, so long ago. But I want to end with a different type of point. Consider the mercy and the kindness of God. Because though this sin is so great and accommodated and allowed, yet God is ready to forgive. And the instructions are there. And you find that uh, a pledge has to be given. Repentance, a pledge, and a ram offered. Uh, Leviticus Leviticus 6 offering has to be made because there's going to be atonement and forgiveness. It's another wrong which Christ, when he comes, will suffer and die for. Covered by the symbolic sacrifice of an animal in the meantime. A ram without blemish and it shall burn upon the altar all night and the offerer will observe it a long vigil as it were watching that sacrificial carcass burn and the cinders blaze all night long that is the punishment symbolised for this crime which God has removed from you and will take away the mercy of God, the kindness of God, they will, after all, be blessed. But it requires a real consciousness of sin. And mercy and grace is offered to all the churches in Revelation. I could go through that list again. There are five out of the seven are given a solemn warning in Revelation. But the warning is accompanied with an offer of mercy and restoration. So though the sin is great, and the forgiveness of God will flow if there is true repentance. Worldliness is a terrible scourge, friends. It repeats and repeats in different forms through history. Just as we conclude, in the United States... In the 1730s and the 1740s, there was a great awakening, just as there was here. The Methodist revival, which became more generalised, is our great awakening. It's called the First Awakening, in the case of the United States. One of the instruments was the same in both cases, George Whitfield. Another, of course, in exclusive to the United States was Jonathan Edwards and there were others and there were mighty crowds listened to the preaching and people in their thousands were moved and churches were planted and existing churches were swollen in membership and there was worship and praise and true conversion it was awakening it was tremendous it was of the Lord But as time went on and the revival subsided and faded away the next thing in was worldliness. And you read that 
some of the uh, divines of the, the 1750s are complaining that in church after church everywhere people are much more interested in dancing and balls and pretty dresses and doing as society does and, and being wealthy and being at ease than they are in sincere worship or gaining any sense of God. Worldliness. The devil repeats the same methods generation after generation. So we watch for worldliness. We exhort each other. And your good friends sometimes will slip, go for something much, much more expensive than they needed. It's a show. It's an imitation of the world around us. We want luxury, want to be noticed, want to be admired, want to be seen or something. And we exhort each other kindly, carefully, prayerfully, always on the watch for worldliness. Keep it off the platform, out of the pulpit, keep it out of the church. We're, only, we're fallible, we're weak, we pray and we watch. And if we don't, it's in in no time. I was talking to a pastor about 30 years ago who was beginning to adopt some contemporary songs in his worship. He has a very large congregation and I was warning him he thought this was just a matter of uh, taste and of generation. We've got to appeal to the young, he said. I said, within 20 years, you'll go the whole way. You'll be completely contemporary in your worship. He was offended. I didn't know him. He would never allow that to happen. Well, I was wrong. It wasn't 20 years, it was 10. And that church was completely contemporary and pretty extreme. Same with the pagan wives. If Ezra under God hadn't been able to move the nation within a generation, that would have been everywhere and the distinctive of Israel would have been utterly lost. Same with churches. So let's be faithful to him. Hold our communion with the Lord. Pray in our weakness to be able to hold the standards and to guard them. That's the message of the closing chapters of the book of Ezra.